The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, HUAC is history. The heyday of the House on American Activities Committee was the 1950s, but we're still concerned about government attacks on people and groups called un-American. And David Marinus has been thinking about that history. His father was called before HUAC in 1952 and then blacklisted from his job as a newspaper editor. His new book is A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. But first, we're still thinking about the terrorist attack in El Paso, where Patrick Cruzius killed 22 people at a Walmart and injured two dozen more. We're told that the shooter was a loner, obsessed by Mexicans, but like almost all of these attacks carried out by domestic terrorists, the El Paso killings have been treated as a single event. But Charleston, Charlottesville, Christchurch, El Paso, these attacks are connected. And for that, we turn to Kathleen Ballou. She writes for the New York Times op-ed page. She teaches history at the University of Chicago. She's been featured on Fresh Air and PBS Frontline, and she's the author of the book, Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. It's out now in paperback. Kathleen Ballou, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, all the attackers we're talking about have been described as loners, but you say these attacks are all connected. How? So this is a place where the history of the white power movement can really help us to understand what we're seeing in the present. And I say movement because we're talking about a coalition of people that included a lot of different belief systems, including Klan groups, neo-Nazi groups, skinheads, and other activists. And it also included a lot of different kinds of people, people of both genders, people who lived in rural, urban, and suburban places, people across class and educational backgrounds. Um, and they came together in a movement with one another in the late 1970s, using the aftermath of the Vietnam War to sort of coalesce around common narratives. And one of the key strategies that really brought this movement together was a thing called leaderless resistance. Now, that's pretty easy to understand now in the post-9-11 world because it's essentially cell-style terror, the idea that a few people can work um, in a cell without 
direct communication with other cells and without direct orders from leadership in the movement, but that all of these cells can be coordinated in action. Cells can be anything from one to, say, 12 people. Um, and this strategy was implemented sort of to stymie prosecution and infiltration efforts. But there's been a much larger and, I would argue, more damaging legacy of the strategy of leaderless resistance which is that it's effectively erased this entire movement as a movement. So what we see instead are a series of stories about lone wolf attackers, acts of violence that are inexplicable and unrelated to each other. We get narratives about perhaps mental illness or personal animus or something. And we miss the very political, very deliberate meaning of this violence, which which comes from understanding it as interconnected. And what is the larger goal of all the attackers in these terrorist incidents? One thing that's really important to understand about the white power movement is that within this movement, the end goal is not the act of mass violence itself. The violence is supposed to be a political action that will work, these activists believe, to awaken other white people to the cause and bring people into the movement. These acts of mass violence are meant to incite a broader race war. But aren't these people, the most recent ones at least, isolated loners? Dylan Roof, for instance, the Charleston killer, didn't go to meetings. As far as we know, did not was not a member of an organization. And as far as we know, neither did the accused El Paso killer. Yeah, the interesting thing that's happening now is that This movement, which has been using the Internet and other computer technologies for a very long time, since the early 1980s, has now reached a level of sort of computer mobilization that is bypassing some of the ways that social relationships used to be very important to this movement for recruitment of new people. So Dylan Roof, as you say, was a loner who didn't have real-life connections with other activists. Nevertheless, it's really clear that he did have connections that meant a great deal to him with this earlier history of white power activism. And the thing that I always think of is the photograph of Roof wearing a Rhodesian flag patch. So Rhodesia, for listeners who might not be aware, uh, Rhodesia was Zimbabwe before um, a revolution changed it from a minority rule government of white people in power to a more democratic system, which is now Zimbabwe. But Rhodesia, this all happened before Dylan Roof was born. This is an old, old issue for white power activists, but it has huge meaning within that movement. And the fact that he chooses that as an identifier when there have been so many other more recent flashpoints that he might have chosen is a really clear indicator that he is in communication with other activists and that he does sort of see himself as part of this longer trajectory of of action. These individuals are called white nationalists, but you say that the nation at the heart of white nationalism is not the United States. What is it? It's important to call this the white power movement because white nationalism makes people think of something much less radical. People think that that white nationalism is just sort of overzealous patriotism or injecting whiteness or shoring up whiteness within the body politic of the United States. But the nation at the heart of white nationalism is the Aryan nation. It's imagined as a transnational polity of white people that could be brought together into either a white homeland or eventually kind of an all-white world. Uh, That's an inherently radical and violent project that, that is fundamentally opposed to the interests of the United States. 
Of course, it's crazy to think that a white power uprising, even by heavily armed violent groups, could overthrow the United States government. How exactly do they imagine they could do this? This is the million-dollar question, and this is why the Turner Diaries is so important. The Turner Diaries is a dystopian novel that uh, first appeared in Serial in the late 1970s in a prominent white power magazine and then was collected into a a paperback. Um, And the Turner Diaries lays out the path through which this seemingly impossible thing could happen. And in the book, they describe it as a gnat trying to assassinate an elephant. In other words, how could a fringe movement hope to take down the most militarized super state in world history? And what they lay out is essentially guerrilla warfare in which acts of violence and sabotage are meant to destabilize power and awaken other white people such that they can eventually tip the balance and achieve an all-white world. Now, for those who have read the Turner Diaries, it is a deeply disturbing but not particularly graceful read, but it's, it's, it's enormously important to the movement precisely because it answers this question. It creates the imaginary through which people can envision how this might work. Um, and we can see how it's so important because of its enormous saturation in white power activist circles. It's still cited and used very heavily today. Its language is still used to frame what activists are doing. And in the period that I look at in the 1980s and 90s, it shows up everywhere. It's in bookstores in South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. Um, It's kept in stacks of 20 and 30 copies in the bunkhouses of paramilitary training facilities. It's all over the place. And what would you say was uh, the biggest success of the white power movement over the last 50 years? The, the largest and most successful example of an act of mass violence meant to awaken people to the movement is the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Um, now, we have a public narrative of that bombing as another of these lone wolf events. Occasionally, we see a more complex story that involves co-conspirators Um, But usually it's only the people who are tried with Timothy McVeigh. So we're talking about a group of three or four people. The reason that we understand it that way is that there was a huge and very unsuccessful and embarrassing seditious conspiracy trial a few years earlier in 1987-88 in which the federal government attempted a large-scale prosecution of white power activists and came up with acquittals. Um, The trial was hugely embarrassing for the federal government, and in its aftermath, there was a decision made that these crimes would be investigated not as part of a movement, but only as individuals. I think the language was they would make no attempt to tie the crimes to a broader movement. So that's the policy in place at the moment of the Oklahoma City bombing. So from the investigation to the trial, everything is limited by that that piece of decision-making such that there's never an investigation, much less sort of a coherent change in public understanding that this is the work of a movement. Um, But I spend a full chapter in the book talking about how deeply Timothy McVeigh was immersed in this movement, um, both through social uh, connections and his own beliefs, and how this is really clearly an act of white power violence. You've shown us in your book, Bring the War Home, how the historical roots of this white power movement go back to the 70s and the 80s. Is there anything new about the recent attacks, say, El Paso or Charleston? Absolutely. So 
as I mentioned, this movement has been online since the early 1980s and in many ways pioneered social network activism before the rest of us had even heard of something like Facebook. Um, Their early message boards were posting things like, um, you know, assassination lists and targets, but also things like recipes and personal ads. So this is a deeply imbricated site of social network activism from the beginning. But what we see now is as those social network spaces have expanded and become um, more sophisticated, these attackers are using things like going viral and using things like the underside of the internet to connect with one another, to organize, and also to kind of pave the way to future violence. But there's a clear change from the earlier manifestos to the more recent ones that they're starting to contain more and more tactical instruction for future actors. So the latest one in El Paso had information about ammunition, target selection, ear protection, all kinds of things that are in there so that future attackers can use that information to carry out additional violence. That kind of direct use of the manifesto as a messaging tool, I think, is is new. Let's talk about Donald Trump's place in the white power movement. The El Paso Killers manifesto quoted Trump extensively about an invasion from Mexico, but your history and analysis suggests a different way of understanding Trump's role in white nationalist violence. There are a few different things that are important to understand. One is that the last time this movement turned violent was not under a leftist government. The last time this movement declared war and carried out assassinations and stole military weapons and began a cycle of paramilitary training was in the second term of the Reagan administration, when arguably they stood to benefit from a lot of the policy coming down from the federal government. So the idea that because there's a sympathetic executive, we will see a reduction in this kind of activism and violence um, simply doesn't hold true in the historical record. The other thing that's important to understand is that this kind of a social movement is organized across a, I guess we could think of it as a spectrum of sort of intensiveness. So if you think about a series of concentric circles, What we're talking about in the period that I study is a very small number of people, 10 to 25,000 people in that middle circle who live and breathe this movement. Those are the people who might become violent and a whole bunch of other people who just have their entire lives in this movement. They attend white power churches. They pick each other up from the airport. They provide childcare to one another. They get their marital counseling in the movement. Often they live in communities that are entirely within the movement. Outside of that, there's another 150,000 people who aren't that deeply involved, but who regularly attend rallies, purchase the newspapers, send contributions, and do stuff like that. Outside of that, there's another 450,000 people. And those people don't themselves buy the newspapers, but they regularly read the newspapers. Now, this is where we have to get a little bit more You have to imagine the next circle, which is people who would never themselves read something that says official newspaper of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, but who might agree with some of the ideas in them, um, especially if they are presented by a friend or if they come to them from someone they trust. That outer, more diffuse circle um, is a place where there is a whole bunch of people who are talking about invasion in, in the current moment, who are talking about all kinds of other racist ideas that that have consequences for people in this movement and beyond. So I think what we need to do is really understand how ideas travel from one place to the other across history. 
Um, I would also just say that my colleagues uh, who study the early 20th century would tell you that this invasion language certainly isn't new and that we have a long history of thinking about immigrants as, as invading the nation. And there's a lot that history can tell us about strategies that have and have not worked to sort of overcome that idea. So far, we've been talking about men. Is there any place for women in the white power movement or are they just wives and mothers? This is the biggest surprise to me from the story because I thought I was going to be writing about paramilitary masculinity. And the thing that that appeared in the archives is this intense and very deep network of women's relationships that sustains this activism. Now, the women in this movement serve a really important symbolic role. And you can you can think about this as simply for activists in the white power movement, many issues that that people understand as kind of just classic conservatism for these activists come down to preservation of the race through the reproduction of white children. So, for instance, opposing immigration in the white power movement has to do with the number of white babies versus the number of other babies. Similarly, opposing abortion, opposing gay rights, opposing feminism. In white power discourse, all of this is tied to reproduction and the birth of white children. So so there's a hugely important symbolic role for women. But there's also a material role that women undertook that others have not always seen or taken seriously. Women in the white power movement were doing enormous performative activism in sort of vouching for their husband's credibility and good character. Um, They ran their own quarterlies. They did coupon drives. They did campaigns to support uh, the birth of white children within their own communities. They even created tourist sites where people could go and visit uh, the places where the people that they call white Aryan martyrs had been killed by the federal government. And beyond all of that, if you want to see this social movement, you have to look at women because women are how you can tell that these groups are interconnected. Uh, white power shows up for a very long time as an array of seemingly disconnected forces. But if you look at the actual people who are involved, what you see is this person's daughter married the leader of that group. These two sisters married these two brothers and cemented an alliance between those groups. And women are how you can sort of see how this all worked. And there's a Christian element here, too, isn't there? What, what's the relationship between white power and Christian identity? Christian identity is a political theology that became very, very important to this movement in the period that I study and is still around today. Christian identity is the idea that white people are the true chosen people of God and that everyone else, all other races and ethnicities, are descended either from Satan or from animals, depending on uh, the doctrine that you're following. And Christian identity is very similar to kind of the broader evangelical groundswell we see in the 1980s, not just on the far fringe, but in kind of mainstream conservative circles. But evangelicals have the rapture, which is the idea that they will be transported peacefully to heaven before the apocalypse. Christian identity says there is no rapture, there, that people who believe in this will have to survive the end of days and that they must take up arms to clear the world of non-white people before Christ can return. So what that does is transform this entire uh, political and ideological belief system around white reproduction into a holy war, because now it is a project of faith for these activists to take up arms and engage in race war. Last question. 
You worked on this book, Bring the War Home, for 10 years. Tell us about your research. It's it's a scary topic. It is. And, you know, of course, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to get the story out. But I, I it's been really an uh, intense experience to see it moving into the center of public debate in, in this way over the last few years. The book is based on extensive archival work, as you say, over 10 years. Um, I have three major ephemera collections from the white power movement that include their published and unpublished writings and drawings. Um, And then I also used a lot of declassified government information um, from using the FOIA process from the FBI, the ATF, and elsewhere. And then newspaper searches in the United States and um, in Mexico and Nicaragua, because I have one chapter deals with mercenary soldiers who go to Nicaragua and other places in Central America to fight communism, quote unquote. It's really interesting how much this movement produced. And the three major archives I look at from the white power movement are very different in character. One was compiled by a journalist, one by an archivist who sent around a questionnaire to the groups and said, you know, send me any materials you have lying around. And one by participant observers who pretended to be part of the group and then just picked up materials as they attended meetings. Significantly, all three of those places have basically the same materials. So I do have sort of a sense of coverage of what was going on in this time for these activists. Kathleen Ballou's book is Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. It's out now in paperback, and it's indispensable to understanding what's going on right now. Kathleen, thank you for your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much. Now a message from Politico. The biggest problems facing the world don't respect political boundaries. But are our politicians and other leaders up to the task of solving them? Join host Louisa Savage and Politico journalists from across the world as they unpack the answer to that question on Politico's Global Translations podcast. The first season examines who will write global rules for trade, for new technologies like 5G and AI, and for fighting climate change. Search for Politico's Global Translations on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show. HUAC is history. The heyday of the House Un-American Activities Committee, of course, was the 1950s, but we're still concerned about government attacks on people and groups called un-American. And David Marinus has been thinking about that history. His father was called before HUAC in 1952 and then blacklisted from his job as a newspaper editor. David is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and associate editor at the Washington Post. He's also a distinguished visiting professor at Vanderbilt, and he's written 12 books, including best-selling biographies of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. His new book is A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. David Marinus, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. So when your father was subpoenaed by HUAC in 1952, who was he? And how old were you? My father was 34 years old. He was the chief rewrite man at the Detroit Times in Detroit, Michigan. He had come out to Michigan from his growing up in Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York, and went to the University of Michigan, and then 
went to Detroit to be a newspaper man, interrupted by World War II. But in 1952, we were living in Detroit. I was not yet conscious of my life. I was two, not quite three. I have no memories of that moment. And who was the the rat, the stoolie, the fink who named your father? Well, she was called, the, uh, among other things, the grandmother spy. Her name was Berenice Toby Baldwin. She was 49 years old and a grandmother, um, a working-class woman from Detroit who had been recruited by the FBI nine years earlier uh, during the war um, to become an informant uh, for the FBI in the Michigan Communist Party. She remained uh, there until 1952 when the House on american Activities Committee came to Detroit. She came in from the cold at those hearings. She had been the secretary of the Michigan Communist Party, had hundreds of names of people who had been in the party over the course of her time there, and she named all the names. My father was one of those. And... When and how did you find out that your father had been a member of the Communist Party? You know, it was a shadow in our uh, in my in our lives. Um, later, I I knew that that he'd been a member of the party. I knew that he'd been fired from jobs, but it was not something that he talked about. Um, he he sort of survived that period and moved on. Became a very successful progressive newspaper editor. Uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. And by the time I became politically conscious, it was something sort of in our past, a shadow of the family. And so I knew that it, that, that this had happened, but I didn't know any of the particulars. And, you know, I'd spent my adult career writing biographies of people who were strangers to me when I started and became very familiar to me. And throughout that process, I'd often say to people, when they'd ask, well, why did Barack Obama or Bill Clinton tell this particular story about his family that wasn't necessarily the right one? And I'd say, you know, we all hear the mythology from our parents and grandparents of our family story, but very rarely do we have a biographer coming behind us to find out what really happened. And I started thinking, well, I hadn't even done that with my own family, and that's what got me started on this project. In doing research on your father's story, you went to the National Archives and looked up the HUAC files on him. What did you find? That was probably the most emotional moment of my research, and it came very early on. The hearings in Detroit in March and February of 1952, there were transcripts of those hearings. They were public record. And in those hearings, you could see in the transcript that my father said he had a statement he'd like to read about what he felt it meant to be an American. And the chairman of the committee, a Georgia Southern, a Southerner from Georgia, declined, refused to let him read the statement. So I knew that he wanted to give a statement. And all of those decades later, in 2015, I went to the National Archives. There was a, a large uh, file on those hearings in Detroit and one folder that said Elliot Marinus. And when I opened it, the first thing I saw was the statement that they would not let my father read. Wow. And what did it say? It was a very profound defense of not only his definition of what it meant to be an American, but of freedom of speech and of freedom of the press. And he was making the argument that it was the committee that was un-American and that in the United States, there was never a, a movement to acquiesce 
to, to decline our rights for freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And it was a very strong, powerful statement that, that uh, I found both moving on a personal level and very strong on a, on a larger universal level. You said the committee chairman who refused to let him read his statement was a Southerner from Georgia. His name was John Stevens Wood. You also studied his life, and you found out he wasn't just a Southerner from Georgia. No, one of the one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to look at my father's experience through the the lens of everyone who was in that room during that most traumatic period of his life. The chairman of the committee, John Stevens Wood had once been a member of the Klan as a young man. Stunningly, I found that he had driven the car that carried the lynched body of of Leo Frank, a, a Jewish industrialist who'd been lynched by a mob in 1915 uh, in Marietta, Georgia. Um, the, the mastermind of that lynching was essentially John Stevens Wood's mentor, and Woods drove the car that carried the lynched body. Uh, after that, uh, as a Southern racist, he, he voted for every possible racist uh, piece of legislation and against any civil rights legislation. And he's the person who called my father, who had been very strong on civil rights and the commander of an all-black unit during World War II, called my father un-American. So the question is, what does it mean to be an American and who decides who's American and who's un-American? And your father's attorney has a very interesting story. Tell us about him. Yeah, my father's attorney was an African-American lawyer from Detroit named George Crockett, who later went on to become a congressman from Detroit. And he was of the left, but not a member of the Communist Party. But he felt very deeply um, that the civil liberties that should be afforded to someone for their political purposes uh, were very deeply connected to the civil liberties that were denied to African Americans. And so he thought it was all part of the same struggle to give to what might be called the other, whether it was a communist or a black or or a Eastern European immigrant or a Native American. He believed deeply that all those civil liberties were closely connected. And so he was strong in the defense of my father, of people who were accused of being un-American for being communists, and of, of course, of uh, the rights of, of black people in America. And there was another file you found. Military intelligence also interviewed people about your father uh, when the war began, including someone named Morton Mintz. That was a name that was familiar to you. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, you know, uh, they investigated my father during World War II when he was seeking to become an officer, which he eventually became. But the military intelligence went back to the University of Michigan and interviewed um, professors, fellow students, landlords, everybody they could find about my father. And one of those they interviewed was the student who had, re- who had succeeded my father as the editorial editor of the college newspaper, the Michigan Daily. His name was Morton Mintz. And when I saw that piece of paper in the, f- in the FBI files, it really floored me because I had worked with Morton Mintz at the Washington Post. I had been his editor briefly um, in the investigative staff, and I admired him greatly for his um, sort of fearlessness and maverick ways in taking on uh, the powers that be, uh, whether they were the drug industry or the newspaper itself. And it sort of surprised me when I saw that 
he told the uh, military investigators that my father should not be trusted. He should not. He didn't want him to be a, uh, an officer in the American military. And it was a very strong denunciation of my dad. And so uh, Morton Mintz was 95 years old when I read that, and he was still alive. He was still alive, and so you went to talk to him. What did he say? You know, I found Morton Mintz uh, in Washington, and he told me that he didn't have a strong memory of it, but that it was the biggest shame of his life. And he doesn't know quite why he did it except for the strong uh, sort of sentiments of that time during the war and the fervor against uh, the Communist Party. So I felt badly that he said that. He was 95. I didn't want him to, to uh, you know, go to his grave with this remorse because I told him that my father was a very forgiving person. Those were difficult times. And, uh, you know, I didn't want him to feel that remorse about it. So we had a long discussion, but it was a really difficult moment for him and for me. And when your father was before the committee and the committee asked him the famous question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party, your father pled the fifth. Uh, Explain what that meant and how it worked. Well, pleading the fifth meant that you did not have to testify against yourself. The committee um, interpreted anyone who took the fifth to mean that they were guilty and that, you know, that was simply an expression of guilt. Uh, My father took the Fifth Amendment because he didn't want to have to answer questions about anyone else. He was not going to testify against any of the people that were also in the Communist Party. He had already been fired from his job. They couldn't do anything more to him um, in terms of that, but he was not going to, to do the bidding of this committee, which really only wanted people to confess and be contrite and ask for uh, forgiveness. And my father was not about to do any of that. You know, decades later, young people like I used to be went back over this history of people who pled the fifth, and we asked why the Communist Party members didn't explain themselves to the public when they had the chance. Why didn't they testify something like, I joined the Communist Party because I wanted to support workers organizing the CIO, because I wanted to work with black people who were fighting for equality, and because I wanted to join the fight against fascism in Spain and in Europe. Wouldn't that have been a lot better than answering the question, I refuse to answer on the grounds that it might incriminate me? That's a very uh, interesting argument. And of course, those are the reasons that most of them joined the Communist Party, and they're, they're very noble, idealistic reasons. What happened was, in the late 1940s, many people did say, make those arguments, including the Hollywood Ten, and they, they sort of stood behind the, their First Amendment freedom of speech rights. That led them to, to prison. They were in prison because the First Amendment did not protect them. And there's, there's one more thing. The rules of the committee were that if you answered one question, you had to answer all the questions. Exactly. That's, that's the point. And that's what people like my father would not do, because that meant they would have to answer questions about other people and become informants, essentially, for this committee. Last question. I want to ask about the New York Times review of your book. Uh, the reviewer, Kevin Baker, concluded, for all of Marinus's research... 
A mystery remains at the heart of a good American family. Just what were his parents, especially his father, doing in the Communist Party in the first place? The book gives us little insight into how this great American spirit ended up stuffing himself into a closet of dreary Russian dogma, close quote. The book review did print several several rebuttals uh, in their letters column, Nothing From You. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, of course I do. I mean, you know, as the author, you know, I, I tend not to respond to reviews. I let them stand on their own. In this case, it was an overwhelmingly positive review with a conclusion at the end or an ending that I disagreed with. I think it was readily apparent why my father was attracted to the Communist Party, why my parents were. It had to do with uh, the, the Great Depression and a belief that capitalism had failed, with the r- rampant racism in the United States and with the rise of fascism and Nazism in Europe. I think all of those factors, along with the labor movement, the strong labor movement in Michigan where where they were uh, college students, all of those factors led them toward that idealistic, if somewhat naive, uh, place. One last thing. Your father was fired from his job and uh, blacklisted. Where did he end up? He was fired from the Detroit Times as soon as the informant named his name. For five years, our family bounced around to New York and Cleveland and back to Detroit and Ann Arbor and a small town in Michigan, I mean in Iowa, a small town in Iowa. But he finally in 1957, after five years in the wilderness, got hired by the Capital Times in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, It was a progressive newspaper that had made its name Fighting Joe McCarthy, the symbol of that Red Scare era. McCarthy had just died when we got to Madison. And in many ways, that job in that city saved our family. And where are you right now? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, um, where I went to high school and, and university. And my wife and I are both from here, and we have a summer house here. David Marinus, his new book is A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. David, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. It was great talking with you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. 
And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.